through the Gospel of John. We come to John chapter 5. We start to see a miracle of Jesus. And these miracles are not just fascinating things to explore, but each of them communicates an aspect of who Jesus is. And so I've entitled this message, When Healing Doesn't Work. I kind of like the message that another pastor used, which was this. This is entitled, Jesus' Sabbath Day Healing of the Hard-to-Like, Half-Dead Man. Given that, let's take a look at John chapter 5, beginning at verse 2. Here's what John writes. Now, there is in Jerusalem, by the Sheep Gate, a pool in Aramaic called Bethesda, which has five roofed colonnades. In these lay a multitude of invalids, blind, lame, and paralyzed. One, went, one man was there who has been an invalid for 38 years. When Jesus saw him lying there and knew that he had already been there a long time, he said to him, Do you want to be healed? And the sick man answered him, Sir, I have no one to put me into the pool when the water is stirred up, and while I am going, another steps down before me. Jesus said to him, Get up, take your bed, and walk, and at once... The man was healed, and he took his bed, and he walked. Now that day was the Sabbath. So the Jews said to the man who had been healed, It is the Sabbath, and it is not lawful for you to take up your bed. But he answered them, The man who healed me, that man said to me, Take up your bed and walk. They asked him, Who is the man who said to you, Take up your bed and walk? Now the man who had been healed did not know who it was, for Jesus had withdrawn, and there was a crowd in the place. Afterward, Jesus found him in the temple and said to him, See, you are well. Sin no more that nothing worse may happen to you. The man went away and told the Jews that it was Jesus who had healed him. And this was why the Jews were persecuting Jesus, because he was doing these things on the Sabbath. But Jesus answered them, My father is working until now, and I am working. Let's pray for God's blessing on his word. Heavenly Father, we pray. And I ask, Lord, that you would send your spirit to open our hearts and minds, our souls. Lord, that you would turn hearts of flesh to hearts of stone. Lord, that your spirit would call us to you as our highest and our utmost commitment. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. As we begin this morning, I'm going to begin with a discussion not of this text and what this text teaches, but I actually want to begin with a discussion about this text for this passage has been involved in a lot of debate about the reliability of Scripture itself. And what people have argued, indeed, for the latter part of the 19th century into the 20th century, and there were textbooks on this, was that this passage was a perfect example of why you cannot trust the Bible, why you cannot trust the historical accounts, and why it is clear that the that the Bible was written by people who were not eyewitnesses to the events. And so the argument went like this. You look at verse 2, it states this. Now there is in Jerusalem by the Sheep Gate a pool in Aramaic called Bethesda, which has five roofed colonnades. And these lay a multitude of invalids, blind, lame, and paralyzed. One man was there who had been an invalid for 38 years. And it was argued that this is a perfect example why you can't trust the Bible and why it absolutely cannot be written by eyewitnesses. And they gave several reasons. The first reason was this, is that this pool by the Sheep Gate in Jerusalem does not exist. No one has ever had any knowledge of it. 
It's not in any other traditions. It's not recorded. There is no evidence of it, and this pool doesn't exist. Number two, it was argued that it states here that this had a five-roofed colonnade. A colonnade if around a pool would be like a porch, so that if people were in the pool and it was hot or the sun was too intense, they could get out of the weather and recline underneath the colonnade or recline underneath the roof that surrounds this pool. And the argument was this. It says that this is a five-roofed colonnade, and that means, therefore, that this was a pool that was shaped like a pentagon and a pentagon that had five different sides. And so it is clear, it was argued, that this was obviously not written by an eyewitness and someone who did not know Jewish architecture because Jewish architecture never used pentagons and they only used rectangles and it wasn't until many years later that other cultures started using pentagons in their architecture. Therefore, it was concluded that this story, as many stories in the Bibles they would assert, was made up by people who much later made up what you should believe and they try to make it appear historical. This story, it was argued, is proof that the Bible itself is not reliable. And then they dug up the pool. And the pool was located by the Sheep Gate in an area of Jerusalem. And the reason why no one knew about the pool was because the pool was underneath a church that was built on top of this site to mark the location of this miracle. And as the church had been built up, people eventually forgot why this church had been built there. And when they discovered the pool, something that they discovered was that the pool had two basins, two basins, two pools. There was a, a ridge of rock that divided the pool. Why that's significant is this, is because as they dug it up and discovered that this pool had a ridge of rock and divided it, is that they found the colonnade bases, and indeed the colonnades for one, a north colonnade, two, a southern colonnade, three, an eastern colonnade, four, a western colonnade, and five, for a center colonnade that divides the two. And what they discovered, and then indeed also was a rectangle, and these five colonnade, colonnades existed in a rectangular pool and not in a Pentagon, as other people had purported. So instead of being a perfect example of why you cannot trust the Bible as being historically reliable, now we have a perfect example of why you can trust the historical accuracy of Scripture and why you can trust that this was written by, as evidenced by, written by eyewitness accounts because of these particular details which were uncommon and particularly unique to the events at this place and at this location. Indeed, there are many other books and other museum exhibits throughout the 20th century that have been retracted because of assertions of the unreliability of Scripture that archaeology has subsequently proved. That's the first thing about this passage that's discussed. The second thing about this passage is this. Is if you read the text, it goes like this. Verse 2. Now there is in Jerusalem by the Sheep Gate a pool in Aramaic called Bethesda, which has five roofed colonnades. Verse 3. In these lay a multitude of invalids, blind, lame, and paralyzed. Verse 5, one man was there who had been an invalid for 38 years. Now, anyone who can count knows that it goes, that what is missing is verse number, verse number 4, right? And what you'll see is that if you look in your Bibles, there's probably a, a, a reference or a footnote there. And what it says in verse, at this point is it says, 
For an angel of the Lord went down at certain seasons into the pool and stirred the water. Whoever stepped in first after stirring the water was healed of whatever disease he had had. And that was put in there. Now, how, what do we understand with this? What happens is that the verse numberings that you have in the Bible weren't added to the text of Scripture until 1550 is when, the, when verse numbers, chapters and verse numbers were added to the New Testament. It's 1570 when they were, they were added to the Old Testament. And what biblical scholars have sought to do for ages and for centuries is that they have sought to take the manuscripts that we have, the, the drafts and the copies of the Bible, and use them by a pretty simple pattern of logic and a pr pretty simple problem solving to take them and compare them against each other, against the age and date of the manuscript, the location that it was written, and use those to clarify if there are any copying errors or other errors that were introduced into the text. And so what they discovered is that very clearly that this, asp this verse, that's a footnote in your Bible, was something that was written on the margin of manuscripts to explain why people came to this pool. And the reason why all these invalids were around this pool was because there was this myth in the society that an angel had come down and periodically the angel would stir up the waters, probably because it was sped by a fed by a spring, and when that occurred, the water would start to bubble. And the myth was that when the water started to bubble, the first person who got into the water, when it started to bubble, when the water was stirred up, they would get healed. And so because of this myth, multitudes of people, the text says, gathered around to do this. But for our purposes here, the text, this explanatory note, was on the side, was a comment to explain what was going on in this passage. And then some years later, it got incorporated into a copy of the text. And so what biblical scholars do today is that they take the various manuscripts, which there's over 5,000 uh, copies of the New Testament in particular available, and they use this basic pro process of logic to, to deduce and to problem solve what exactly was the original text, because we don't have the original one. And through that process, biblical scholars are confident that the Bible that you have is a Bible that is translated from a Greek version that has over, where you can have over 99% confidence that what you're reading in the Greek version that we have was the version that was originally written by the original authors. Now, some people take that and say, okay, so we've got this Greek version, but there's so many translations of the Bible. And the thought is, is that, like, the thought is, is that it gets distorted through translation, kind of like it did on the Lewis and Clark expedition. If you're familiar with this, what happened on the Lewis and Clark expedition as they sought to um, find a, a water route to the Pacific Ocean, and they went up the Missouri River from St. Louis up through Montana and into Washington State, is they would go and Lewis and Clark would declare to the nations that existed, to the Native Americans and the tribes, a message from President Jefferson. But there were so many languages that they had to find a variety of translators. So this is literally the way that it occurred, is that Lewis would translate, would give a message in English, and his message in English would go from him to his private, who also spoke French. This soldier, who spoke French and English, would then communicate it to their translator, who didn't speak English, but only spoke French and one or two Indian languages. So then he would take it from French, and he would translate it into Hidatsa, which was the language of his wife, Sacagawea, 
and he would translate it into his language of his wife, and then she would then translate it into Shoshone or into other languages, and it would go through this, this sequence. And then if a message was being communicated back, it would go through the varying levels. There are records of when this occurred that sometimes they would have to go through sign language because some Native American languages were sign language as well. And there are also other records that sometimes the translators who both understood the same language um, would break into fights or however how it was properly translated and then they would get confused what the message was supposed to be in the first place and then the process would have to start over as this went on. They've even stated, have records of one short paragraph taking over eight hours to get from, the, from Lewis to the tribal chief who he was communicating with. And many people think this is the way that the Bible, the Bible translation we have is what we have today. It goes through this, this series of various permutations and translations and retranslations to get to this distorted message at the end. But that's not the case. That's not the Bible that we have today. Instead, your English translations of the Bible, what they're doing is that they're going back to the Greek and they're going back to the Hebrew and translating it from Greek, in, from Greek into English. And Spanish translations of the Bible, the good ones, go not from Greek to English to Spanish, but they go from Greek to Spanish, and so on and so forth around the rest of the globe. Why does this matter? It matters because Scripture, the Bible, is not just the musings of people's religious reflections. It is the historical acts of God. And if they are the historical acts of God, then it changes the history and the trajectory of the world. And what's recorded here as historical acts provides clue, the clue, to the meaning of the whole world and the meaning of life. It provides the answer to how this world is made right again, and indeed how you are made right and how people are made right with God. And since this is the true story of the historical acts of God, your life fits into this story whether you acknowledge it or not, if it is historically true. That's why this is so important. Now let's dive into the text itself. We come here and there's two questions that I think this, te this text really challenges us with. The first one's clearly stated, the second one is derived from it. Is that it is a penetrating question that we need to honestly ask ourselves. Jesus comes up to this man and he asks him this. He saw him lying there and knew that he had already been there a long time, and he said to him, do you want to be healed? Now let's think about the situation. The man has been lame, lying there for 38 years. That's longer than many of you have been alive. It's longer than many of your, it's long, more than the majority of many of your lives. And we'll see later that he was lame most likely because of something that he had done. And so good estimates are that he's probably around 60 years old possibly. And for 38 years he has been laying at this pool hoping to get healed. And he has been laying there with a multitude of other people who are paralyzed, lame, and blind. Now imagine this scene. People who are unable to move gather together, bodies who have not moved for years or who people carry them in for the day and then carry them back out. You have bodies that are atrophied, who have no muscle tone. Their bodies have been wasting away. These are people who cannot get up and move to go to the bathroom. So the stench in this place would have been overwhelming along with the filth. People who are there who are completely helpless. 
the hopelessness would have been so thick and suffocating. And the powerlessness of people gathered together in this mass of suffering humanity. And any income that they would have would be from begging or people coming by and giving it to them. And why are they all waiting there? Because when you are desperate, when you are in need, you will try anything. And you will try laying in a pile of humanity, waiting for the water to be stirred, that you might be the one to get in there first. So Jesus comes to this man and he asks him this question, do you want to be healed? And the answer is not obvious. We might say, well, of course he wants to be healed. Like, duh, right? Of course he wants to be healed. The answer is not obvious. And we know that just from our own human experience. In a cardiologist, there's many studies in many realms of health that for people who have heart attacks, who have preventable illnesses, and who could, through changes that they make, um, would dramatically reduce their risk of heart attack and increase their life expectancy by decades. Studies with thousands of people, and guess what the result is? Nine out of ten people don't change. Nine out of ten faced with a terminal illness that they could avoid, do not change. Do you want to be healed? Do you want to get well? And it continues into other reasons that there's realms of people with patterns of you know, dysfunction in their relationships, patterns of hurt. And they say, like, do you want it to get better? Well, well do you think that I want to continue to deal with all the stress and suffering in my life? I, I don't know. I don't know. People who are in marriages, who have dysfunctional marriages, and the question comes, do you, do you want to get well? Do you want your marriage to be healed? Well, of course. I mean, of course I want to be in a marriage where we both love each other and where we thrive and where we delight in each other. Well, do you want to be healed? Do you want your marriage healed? What it means is that this unhealthy power dynamic that you guys have, the way that you control and manipulate your relationships through, through your anger, the way that you manage people through anger, needs to change. It means that, that, the, that the bitterness that has been eating away at the life of your soul and the life of your family, it means that if you don't want any hope of your marriage thriving, that you're going to have to forgive this person. I don't know if I want to do that. Not a given. It's not a given. Well, well, of course I want this to change. Of course I want this. But, but I'm ready. I mean, but let's be real. After what's happened here, they have to make the first move. So layer upon layer, justification upon justification gets added on and it's built, built up. And it extends into spiritual walks in so many realms. Some of the most heart-wrenching aspects of my pastoral ministry, and this isn't isolated, it's been repeated. One of the most heart-wrenching aspects is walking with people to the edge of the cliff, walking with them and setting before them life and death. And they know, they acknowledge that it's life and death, and they still choose death, not accidentally, but deliberately, deliberately. And at times people come to, come to church, they are here, they love the people, they love the teaching, and then there comes a point where they just realize that they, just, they don't want to be healed. And so they just leave. 
don't go anywhere else. They just leave. So let me ask you the question. Do you want to be healed? Do you want to be healed? Let's go. I said, you know, few things hamper the gracious work of Christ in our lives more than our response to this question. Do you want to be healed? Yeah, we want the pain and the discomfort to go away, but do we want to be healed? And here's the amazing thing, that if, you, if you're in a, stuck in one of these patterns, or if you're, if you're not a Christian, if you want to be healed, you can be right now. Like, this isn't complicated. You just cast yourself upon Jesus. And if you, and if you remain unconverted... It's because you choose to be. The opportunity is there. You're like, I don't don't want to be healed. Tony Robbins, who is um, a coach, he's kind of a, he's a popular speaker, author right now. He's the latest iteration of motivational, you know, the motivational message of self-salvation that gets put out in our culture every few years or so, in his assessment of human people, he's quite accurate, actually. And one thing he says is he says this. He says, when my people, when my clients come to me and they want to change, he says, I don't care what my clients want. I care what they are committed to. And he is absolutely correct. Is that what drives our lives is these deep-seated commitments that we have. Not our wants, not our wishes, but these deep-seated commitments that we have that we will defend to the death. And we come to this story. This story exposes two sets of heart commitments. The first is this layman, this layman who is deeply committed that life is not his fault. And we'll see that in a minute. And the other group, which we'll have to talk about in a future week, is the Pharisees, who is deeply committed to the idea that they cannot accept the possibility that they might not be right. Firm commitments that they both have. And so this first question is a, is a penetrating question. Do you want to be healed? And this leads to a very revealing question to us which is, what is your utmost commitment? What is the highest commitment that you hold to? And I want you to investigate with me how this plays out in the life of this paralyzed man who is healed. Look at verse 7. Jesus says to him, when Jesus saw him lying there and knew that he had already been there a long time, he said to him, do you want to be healed? Verse 7, the sick man answered him, Sir, I have no one to put me into the water when the water is stirred up, and while I'm going, another steps steps down before me. Did he answer the question? No. No, he didn't. What is he saying? He's saying, the reason why I am not well is because others are being so unfair to me. The reason why I'm not well is there aren't, I don't have people who would come and put me in the water. The reason why I am not healed is because when the water gets stirred up, if it ever happened. When this occurs, someone gets, in and someone gets down and gets in front of me. And at one level, it begs the question, why does this man have no one? Was he the kind of person that no one actually wanted to put in the pool? 
but we don't want to read into it. So that's why, why is he not well? Because other people weren't going to help him. And then Jesus heals him, and notice what happens. Jesus heals him, and then coming to verse 10, says, So the Jews said to the man who had been healed, It is the Sabbath, and it is not lawful for you to take up your bed. What happened here is that the, the Pharisees, which were Jewish religious leaders, in order to guard and put a hedge of protection around the Sabbath, the Lord's Day, is that they made all kinds of additional rules. One of those rules was you're not allowed to walk except a certain distance, and you're not allowed to carry weights and loads except a certain amount. And so they said, you are, you man, it is not lawful for you, you are breaking the law, it is not lawful for you to take up your bed, even though it wasn't actually a breaking of the Sabbath, just breaking of their rules. Notice how the man responds. But he answered them two times, right? The man who healed me, the man who healed me, that man said to me, take up your bed and walk. It's his fault, not mine. It was the healer man who did this. It was that man who told me to break, it was that man who told me to break the Sabbath. It's not my fault. Kind of like when God said to Adam, Adam, why did you eat of the apple? The woman you gave me told me to do it. Eve, why did you eat of the apple? The serpent, you know, the one that you created, the serpent told me to do it. It's not my fault. And then Jesus comes and interacts with him, reminds him of the grace of God in his life. And he say, they say to him, actually first they say, who is this man who said to you, take up your bed and walk? Now the man who had been healed did not know who it was, for Jesus had withdrawn as there was a crowd in that place. So he just gets healed after being lame. He doesn't even know who does it. Just an observation. And so Jesus comes to him, reminds him and says, you know, you are well, said no more. And what does the man do? The man went away and told the Jews that it was Jesus who healed him. He tattles on Jesus. He said, it was the healer man who did this. It was the guy who told me to get up and walk. Ha, his name is Jesus. And he runs back to the Pharisees, and he tells the Pharisees that it was Jesus who told him to break the Sabbath. Don't blame me. It's someone else's fault. And here's the amazing thing for this guy. When you look at verse 14, for why he was paralyzed. Verse 14, Jesus said to him, see you are well. Sin no more that nothing worse may happen to you. Why was he paralyzed? It was because of his sin. He had done something that caused him to be paralyzed. Sin no more that nothing worse than what has already happened to you as a result of your sin may happen to you. What would that worst thing be? Namely, eternal judgment. That each of us stand before God who will judge the living and the dead and will stand before him and those who are, have new life in Christ will be given everlasting life and those, will those who don't will face something worse. Now, Scripture makes clear in other instances that there are at times when people have disabilities and diseases for no one's fault. There was a child man who was born blind, and the disciples asked Jesus, whose fault was it, this man or his parents, that this man was born blind? And Jesus said, it was no one's fault. Rather, this occurred that the glory of God might be shown in him. There are times that people are disabled because of errors and accidents that occur, again, through nobody's fault. But this man was paralyzed because of his own fault. Sin no more that nothing worse may happen to you. I had a friend in college who, was, who um, was so drunk and so high, he decided that he could fly out of a third-story window. He jumped out of a third-story window trying to make it to the deck, 
he broke his spine in five places. And the reason why he didn't become a quadriplegic was because he was so high that he hit the ground like jello and his muscles didn't have time to clench up so he wasn't becoming quadriplegic. Right? He almost made a near 100% recovery. But he's got some, a couple limitations. Guess what the answer is for him? Sin no more that nothing, something worse doesn't happen to you, right? It, it, was, it, it was his fault. And so, this man is so profoundly committed to this narrative of his life that life is not my fault. The things that have happened to me are not my fault. The reason why I'm not healed is because others wouldn't carry me. The reason why I'm not healed is because others get in front of me. The reason why I'm walking on the Sabbath is because that healer man, whose name I now know is Jesus, that man was the one who told me to break the Sabbath. But the very reason why he was paralyzed was his fault. His lameness was his fault. But he was so committed to this narrative of his life, so committed to this view that he was the victim of other people's carelessness, the victim of other people's decisions, that he was blind to the grace of God. Yes, yes, he knew he was healed. But he was blind to the fact that God Almighty in Jesus Christ was before him. He was blind to the fact that the Savior of the world had healed him. And he was more concerned when he sees Jesus again face to face, he is more concerned to run and tattle to the Pharisees and say, it wasn't my fault, I found the man. What's so sobering about this passage and sad is that there are some people probably some here today, that you've lived your life the same way. That you've lived your life with this deep commitment that it's not my fault. You know that I wouldn't be this way, fill in the blank, if. I wouldn't be this way if, you know, I didn't have such a dysfunctional childhood. But, but, but pastor, you don't understand you don't understand because if my spouse really loved me the way that a spouse should love me, I wouldn't be acting this way. If my parents, you know, treated me the way that parents should treat their children, it wouldn't be like this. If my boss didn't give me the fitness re review and the fitness report that I have, I wouldn't be in this career situation. You see, you don't understand because if God hadn't put me in this situation, you'd be amazed at how amazing my life is. I mean, you look at me and be like, that guy is awesome. So committed. And what is so sad is that if you hold such a commitment, it blinds you to the grace of God. So much so that like this lame man, that if Jesus himself reached out and healed you, you wouldn't even see it. Pity the soul. Holy Spirit, may it not be true. And some have been blind to the grace of God. They've held commitments so tightly, it's not my fault. Or I can't imagine the thought that I wouldn't be right. They've held it so tightly. They can't see God's grace. And it's not that the grace of God doesn't surround you, not that the grace of God hasn't been at work in your life, not that the grace of God hasn't worked in your life in remarkable and at times even miraculous ways, but you don't see it because of these commitments. 
So what should this man have done? Jesus actually models, tells the man what he should have done. is that he comes to him again. And Jesus says in verse 14, see you are well. He's saying, look what happened to you. You were lame and now you leap for joy. Like, remember the grace of God in your life. Remember that you have been healed. And then he says, sin no more that nothing worse may happen to you. He's saying, remember and repent and live for the one who healed you. Kind of like the woman at the wells we've seen in weeks before. Who despite her life, after she encounters Jesus, she runs back into town and she says, Hey, come meet a man. Come meet a man who has told me everything that I've ever done. Could he be the Messiah? You know, or Isaiah. You know, when he is confronted with, with who the Lord is, Isaiah says, Woe is me, for I'm a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of people of unclean lips. This man could have fallen down before Jesus and said, I, I do not deserve your grace. Or as Peter does with the boat, when he realized who Christ is, he says, get away from me, Lord. How can I be in your presence of one who is so holy? And here is this man, how he should have responded? Overwhelmed by the grace of God is what he should have been. And he should have said, I, I, the, the one who didn't deserve this, the one who, for whom my paralysis was my own fault, I, I have been healed by Jesus Christ. I have been healed by the Messiah, by God Almighty. Let me commit my life to Him. I imagine, you know, as we stop to consider such a message, as we stop to consider our own, you know, denial, the ways that we've sought to blame others, it's rather, it can be rather sobering. And what will happen for some, hopefully none who are here today, is that they will just become all the more hardened. And for others, hopefully everyone here today, there's a sense of conviction and repentance to turn to Jesus Christ. And Scripture gives us this example as what not to do so that we would entrust ourselves, so that we would entrust ourselves to the one who has been seeking you long before you ever thought of seeking him. You see, it was Jesus Christ who sought out this lame man. He didn't ask for him to come. It was Jesus Christ who said to him, get up and walk, when he had no apparent faith in his response to Jesus. It was Jesus who sought him out again and said to him, look, you are healed, repent. And it was Jesus who had pursued after him again and again. And if you are seeking Jesus this morning, it is only because he has been seeking you and loving you again and again and again long before you ever thought of seeking or loving him. And so I invite you to come. I invite you to come and I invite you to come again. I invite you to come to Jesus empty-handed 
that you would come to him without excuse, that you would come to him without blaming others, that you would come to him without precluding commitments, that you would come and that you would commit your life wholly and unreservedly, that you would commit your life to the one who gave his life for you. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we come before you and we acknowledge, Lord, and Lord, I ask that you would help us to acknowledge that you alone are our hope, that you alone are the one who can heal us. Father, we come to, before you and we acknowledge and we confess to you that we have come up with all kinds of excuses to say why it's not my fault, why it's everybody's fault but my own. But Lord, we pray that by your spirit that you would turn hearts of stone into hearts of flesh that you would turn hearts that have been committed to everything and anything but you, but Lord, that your spirit would turn our commitment to be a wholehearted and unreserved commitment to you, the one who is our Lord and Savior. It's in Jesus' name we pray, amen.